X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 9th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Hope you're enjoying the sunshine and your socially distanced walks out there where you try to calculate the vectors of the various other walkers and calculate a path so as not to get anywhere near six feet of them. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines... A new interview from Eric Klein with the president of Cascade Booksellers Association, Rachel Markey, on supporting independent bookstores. Not just the big ones like Powell's, but all the other ones too, like the ones that end up in Portlandia. Also, our recent interview with Con Pham, candidate for House District 46, running against Jeff Kogan. I know that there's more than enough money in the state to take care of our communities and to fund the social services that we need. It's really just about finding the political will to do it. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and it is Thursday, April 9th. You know, this is the 14th of these that we've done in just about 14 days. You know, not counting weekends. It's a lot. Please do tell friends we're spending our time on the content, not on promotion. You sharing with friends is the way people will know this exists. School's out for covid School's out for summer. Yesterday, Governor Kate Brown extended the school closures for the rest of the year. Here's a clip from a press conference. This decision is important because it is about safety. It is first and foremost to protect our kids and our teachers. It is impossible to adhere to social distancing measures in our classrooms and our schools. Oregon's education workforce is typically older and potentially more vulnerable to COVID-19. We need to make sure we're keeping our students, teachers, principals, and school staff safe as well. There are also operating costs to schools in preparing for a potential reopening. Deciding to close now for the rest of the school year allows us to invest time and resources in the delivery of learning and supporting our students through distant education and remote means. For people who've been tracking the trajectory of the illness, this news is not expected. It is, though, difficult for families who are balancing work and homeschooling, and it's difficult for students looking forward to being back with friends, sports, dances, graduations. The governor did announce that those students who are on track to graduate when schools closed will graduate on time. And while students won't be going back into school buildings, districts are expected to launch online learning by Monday, April 13th through the end of the academic year. No guidance yet about summer programs or next school year. After the passage of Historic Measure 98, this spring was supposed to include the hiring of a bunch of additional staff funded by that measure. But those additional staff hirings are on hold. Oregonian reporting on testing shortages. Oregon has enough ventilators to give some to New York. But we don't have as many test kits as we thought. At a March 18th press conference, Governor Kate Brown stated that coronavirus testing was a top priority. She shared that the health authority had signed a contract for 20,000 tests. Through a public records request, the Oregonian found the contract had not been signed at the time of that press conference. And later, it turned out a contract had been signed two weeks later on April 1st. And the final number? 10,000 tests. Nick Blosser, chief of staff to the governor, also husband of county chair Deborah Crafori, also part of the Sokol Blosser wine family, apologized for the rushed information. The tests will be held in reserve should a larger outbreak occur. 
Through Tuesday, more than 23,000 Oregonians have been tested for COVID-19. Less than 3,000 of those have happened through the state's public health lab. The rest have been processed in private labs across multiple states. And still at this time, testing is not open to the public and is at the discretion of hospitals and doctors. Widespread availability of testing is considered by experts to be one of the key precursors to returning to normalcy. In other news, our governor never called the coronavirus a hoax. The governor is considering early release of some inmates. The governor's requested information on inmates across the state, exploring the possibility of early release in order to contain the spread of COVID-19. On Monday, a class action lawsuit was filed in federal court to protect inmates during the outbreak. Instead of asking for money, the lawsuit asks for medical care, cleaning supplies, and testing. Yesterday, the Mercury reported that inmates at the Columbia River Correctional Facility staged a protest due to a lack of soap, causing the facility to go into lockdown. We'll have more on this on tomorrow's episode with Alex Zielinski from the Portland Mercury. To date, one worker from the Department of Corrections and one inmate have tested positive for COVID-19 in Oregon. Social distancing and the confinement of prisons and jails obviously poses a problem. In addition, Oregon has the highest proportion of prisoners over the age of 55 in the country, according to a 2018 Pew Trust report. And from COVID19.healthdata.org, estimates now show Oregon will reach the peak in about two weeks if we continue social distancing and follow the stay-at-home order. The model assumes full social distancing through May. So don't let the models be self-defeating prophecies. And to your family members who might watch a certain cable news network and who post something on social media like more people die in car crashes or from cigarettes. Know that more people are dying per day in New York right now from COVID-19 than from all other sources combined. This is real. We'll get through it, but it's real. On the local, we've been tracking business impacts. Here are a few headlines. The owners of Old Gold, Pay Dirt, Tough Luck, and High Top Tavern have launched a fundraising campaign selling T-shirts at drinkinoregon.com. They've raised over $6,000 while owners navigate the somewhat circuitous path of federal, state, and local resources. Due to a loss in ad revenue, many of the staff at the Statesman Journal in Salem will be taking off unpaid furlough in each of the coming months. The Statesman Journal will continue their COVID-19 coverage, including a reporter dedicated to real-time blog updates throughout the day. Shout out to local journalists. On Monday, Seaside passed a far-reaching relief package to support the community while tourism is stopped. $1.25 million will be distributed to lodging properties, businesses and nonprofits, and to water customers. The city passed $175,000 relief for water customers, cutting $50 off the water bills for 3,500 customers in April. And in Portland, Prosper Portland is spending just a little bit more than the city of Seaside in rolling out its new loan and grant program called the Portland Small Business Relief Fund. $2 million will be provided in grants and zero-interest loans to small businesses struggling due to the pandemic. The first round of funding from Prosper Portland attracted over 9,000 applicants. 200 got funds. That's tougher to get into than Harvard. Critics are concerned that for an organization with $209 million in expenditures last year, $2 million might be enough for the headline, but not enough to stem the tide. Prosper Portland intends the funding as a bridge until federal money arrives. And from the Department of Sunshine and Flowers, shout out to mutual aid groups. Some unlikely collaborators, Portland Anti-Fascist Group, Popular Mobilization, and Street Medic Group, Rose Hip Medical Collective, have been meeting at the Q Center to make hand sanitizer. To date, they've made over 7,000 bottles to distribute to local nonprofits. Also, musicians are coming together. 
Over 30 local musicians are coming together to raise awareness for the impact on musicians during COVID-19. The group's rendition of Ain't No Mountain High Enough is raising money for the Oregon Musicians Relief Fund. They've raised nearly $35,000 to date. You can find the full song on YouTube. It has about 10,000 views so far. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Eric Klein joins us next with an interview with the president of the Cascade Booksellers Association, Rachel Markey, on supporting used bookstores, like Powell's, but also the smaller neighborhood sellers, the little bookstores, like the ones that get highlighted in Portlandia that you might have on the corner of your neighborhood. I wanted to know how bookstores, especially used bookstores in Portland, were faring during the shutdown. I reached out to Rachel Markley, who is the president of the Cascade Booksellers Association. They represent about 80 members in Oregon and Washington, mostly shops that you can visit, brick and mortar places, but also booksellers that you can meet by appointment and online sellers as well. Rachel Markley is also the owner and founder of Crooked House Books and Paper in Portland, Oregon. She starts by telling us about the state of books and booksellers in Oregon. The great news, you know, up until this weird moment in time that, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like after this, but but the last several years have been really exciting, you know, in the world of bookstores in particular, used bookstores in Portland, you know, we've had one to two shops opening a year, you know, for a while now, and they're staying open and there are these really kind of fun and, and unique You know, the whole neighborhood general used bookstore thing isn't quite what it used to be. And part of that is because of, you know, it's expensive. Um, It's really expensive to, you know, get a place and to compete with, you know, all the other stuff that's going on around us. And so these really fun and interesting shops have popped up all over Portland. But of course, Portland's most famous bookstore, Powell's, had recently made headlines with a very sad story of the business on the edge of going under because of the lockdown. The public response was to buy so many books online from Powell's that they were able to rehire staff for now. Emily Powell, she essentially wrote this open letter saying, this is what we have to do. And it feels terrible, but this is where we are. And there was that thing that happened in the, in the beginning with businesses who had to make this very sudden, horrible decision about, oh, my gosh, we can't pay people if we don't have income. And that's an almost immediate you know, response. And I think that people have this idea that a company like Powell's just has this you know, endless bank account somewhere where they could just pay people and pay for their health care and pay for everything with no income coming in. And that's just not possible. But I think what happened with Powell's has been reflected in smaller ways with other stores, member stores in our organization. And, you know, the initial thing of laying people off so that they could then be eligible for unemployment, um, for example. Has that, and a has lot that been of, happening with, with the smaller bookstores as well? Yes, it has happened with some of the smaller bookstores where You know, they sort of, once people had to make the decision to not be open to regular 
business, walk-in business, and people who had employees sort of had to decide what they were going to do about that. And a couple of shops have been able to keep people um, either, um, and honestly, I don't know the details, the nitty-gritty details for a lot of our members in terms of how how many employees they've been able to keep, how many hours. But I know that, 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 you know, booksellers are, you know, ingenuity can be a thing with a bookseller because you sort of have to be able to keep up with all the crazy stuff that affects what we do. But, you know, we have some folks that are doing really well with this whole, like, you know, special orders, curbside pickup, um, will deliver, free shipping on orders over a certain amount, like finding ways to get books to people has paid off for a lot of our members. And I'm really happy about that. And, you know, one example that I is, you know, Wallace books owned by Julie Wallace. Julie has done a really great job of being able to meet her customers needs for books and her customers. As many of our customers, people have, have said their customers have stepped up. And so, you know, she posted this great um, photo on on Instagram yesterday, I think, where she just had these like bags and bags and bags of books packed up, special orders for customers that are saying, you know, we want this. And she's delivering it or shipping it or putting them out on the porch for people to pick up. And then I've talked to a couple other member stores in the last few days that, um, you know, Julie in particular, but other stores as well, I have a customer who wants blank and I don't have a copy. So what she does is then she reaches out to other member stores and says, who has this book? So dealers, you know, booksellers are buying from each other in order to meet the needs of their customers. Rachel Markley, you are the president of the Cascade Booksellers Association, which the majority of your members are bookstores or booksellers in Portland, Oregon. Is there something that we should tell listeners? How should they approach their neighborhood bookstores or other bookstores? I mean, buy from Powell's, buy from Powell's, buy from Powell's. But if there is another, if you've already have a relationship with the bookstore, how should you proceed? If you already have a relationship with a bookstore or a bookseller, then send them an email or call them up on the phone or send them a a message through social media. If you want something, ask them if they have it or if they can help you get it. I mean, we're still shipping books. It's been remarkable to see how readers, customers, book buyers have stepped up and said, "I I want these people to be here when this is over. So if you're in in Oregon or Washington or Portland, go to CascadeBooksellers.com and find a list of, you know, 75 booksellers or so. Reach out to anybody and see if they can help you get some books. Um, But if you have a neighborhood bookstore, please reach out to them. Almost all of them are still working. Yeah. They're in there working, cataloging books and selling them online and taking special orders and shipping and shipping and shipping. and you know, we really do want to be here when this is over. And the world is going to need us. The world is going to need us. My thanks to Rachel Markley, president of the Cascade Booksellers Association, which is on the web at www.cascadebooksellers.com. For X-Ray, I'm Eric Klein. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Eric. And next, an interview with Con Pham, candidate for House District 46. 
We talk about her experience as a community organizer, revenue reform, and her vision for climate change policy. She's running against Jeff Kogan, former county commissioner. We'll share his interview soon. And thanks to the amazing producing and booking of Emily Gilliland, you can find over 30 local candidate interviews over at xraypod.com. Con, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. How are you spending your days? It's got to be challenging to campaign in the context of a national, an international pandemic. Yeah, it's challenging on, on multiple levels, uh, both the ways in which my family and friends and community have been impacted and, and also the added layer of running for office. I spend my days like a lot of parents working families right now. I'm, I have my five-year-old daughter at home with me. Her school is shut down for the indefinite future. And, and uh, she's, you know, I'm juggling conference calls for my day job at Opal Environmental Justice Oregon and, and coordinating the Oregon Just Transition Alliance, which is a statewide alliance. I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do my work from home, but it's hard. I'm, I'm trying to take care of her and work and, and also uh, lead my campaign. I'm, we're, we're shifting from our kind of field strategy that we had uh, planned for door knocking and trying to figure out ways to continue to have those same conversations, but now online to, to protect our to protect our public health and, and the health of our volunteers. Yeah, how are you going to do those conversations? What are the alternates? Are you doing what businesses are doing and just going to be uh, going to be doing Zoom calls and sending out emails, raising money and doing mail pieces? How are you going to engage with the campaign? Well, one example is what we tried, what we did yesterday. We did a community conversation on Facebook Live, and I invited the current representative, Alyssa Kenny Geyer, and Duncan Wong from Apano, the Asian Pacific American Network of Oregon, to come join me on a Zoom webinar and talk about some of the community stories and responses that we're hearing to the crisis and what the state is doing to, to address some of these, these really stark stories that we're hearing about families worried about losing their jobs or, I mean, we have already 20% unemployment rate now and just in the last week nationally and, and parents worried about childcare for the parents who can't work from home and, and, and even those who can. Um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was the first time that we really tried as a campaign to figure out how do we bring people together, even when we're physically distancing, it doesn't mean that we're going to, we have to be socially isolated. And now more than ever, we need to be coming together to, to hear our stories, hear the challenges and come up with solutions together. So I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm hope, cautiously hopeful that we can use these new technologies to continue to organize our communities like we've always done, but now with just a new, in, in new ways. Talk about the campaign. What do you see as the key differences between you and the other, the your sort of opposition or counterpart in the in the race? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm the only community organizer in the in the race. I have been organizing for two decades, and particularly here in the J District, the heart of House District 46. I, you know, the J District is one of the most diverse census tracts in the state. And it has one of the highest concentrations of Asians and Pacific Islanders, as well as many other immigrant communities. And I bring that experience of knocking on doors, having conversations with all the diverse communities that this, that are in House District 46. And, and I'm committed to bringing those voices. And not just bringing those voices, but actually making sure I'm bringing that, 
communities that I've been organizing with for years now to Salem to make sure that we're our stories, our experiences are really represented in the solutions and policies that are put forth in this really critical time now as we face an economic recession. We need to make sure that the people who are going to be hurt the most are are really considered and, and really leading the as well. How does that manifest in policy differences? So certainly there are differences of representation, of lived experience, and some really valid kind of background human differentiations in any race, and certainly in this one. How does that play itself out in how y'all vote differently or how you'll prioritize issues differently? Where are some key issue differences? Well, in an economic recession, we're going to have to make decisions about who is going to be prioritized in the economic recovery. We're already seeing at the national level, as the House considers a stimulus bill, the ways in which corporations who have powerful lobbyists can can push to make sure that they get tax breaks, even as Oregon has the lowest, some of the lowest, has given some of the lowest tax rates to corporations already. They're getting huge tax breaks, but they're, they're going to continue to push for those in the midst of crisis. While while Oregon's most vulnerable families have to have to shoulder the burden of of joblessness and not and and have to have increasingly had to shoulder the burden of funding our social services, our social safety net. And right now more than ever we need to invest in our social safety net and corporations need to pay their fair share. So I think it shows up in votes because I'm willing to fight. You have to you have to think about who's gonna fight for for working class families who who come from working class you know working households that that knows the struggle of 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 working families and immigrants and 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 that's that's how it shows up in in the votes let's talk about democracy and the process by which we make decisions what's the craziest idea and once i characterize it as a crazy idea maybe you don't want to mess with it but what's the craziest idea whether it's a particular way you would limit campaign contributions or you would invent you know give public funding to political campaigns or having multi-member districts or having or doing something like ranked choice voting or star voting what's sort of the craziest thing that feels the least sort of mainstream way that you would consider not even just read about not even just consider but actually support changing in terms of our current structure of democracy Hmm. i think ranked choice voting is a very reasonable um solution to, to making sure that we have more representative democracy um i think I think we need to address, we need to consider all these solutions. And I am totally open. I feel like my communities that I have been organizing in particularly have have not always felt, um, because cause we as, as uh, people engaging in campaigns haven't done a good enough job in really explaining the impacts of voting and why it is important, how elections do really have huge impacts on on all the issues that we care on our families, on our schools. I think that we need to explore um, all those ideas that you talked about. We need to fig- figure out how can we have di- more representation for communities if it means multi-member representation. I, I haven't I haven't deeply researched them, but I, I all what I do know is that our communities need that we need to radically transform how we campaign and how we elect our, our leadership because right now there's a vast divide, particularly in Oregon. Uh, in my district, House District 46. We have some of the highest concentrations, as I mentioned, of immigrants and Asians and Pacific Islanders, and yet we've never had a single Asian or Pacific Islander representative in our state to represent this district. And 
and that is just a ne- never had an Asian. Of, you're not saying there's never been an, no, an Asian in specific, this district, right, right, right. To, to represent this district, which has the highest concentration mm-hmm. in the J district, has the highest concentration of Asians and Pacific Islanders. There's never been an Asian or Pacific Islander to represent mm-hmm. to represent us, and um, and that makes a difference in terms of how people see our government, whether they see themselves reflected in our government, and if we want to have healthy democracy, if we want to have, especially in this crisis. Uh, communities really represented in their stories being listened to and, and their policy reflecting their experiences. We need to have leadership that comes from from all the diverse communities of Oregon. And appreciate that and want to recognize and make sure we sort of amplify that space that where we stand has a significant impact on what we see and where we end up uh, and very much appreciate that. As you're it, it sounds to me like your policy approach or much of what you've offered in your policy approach is, well, I want to listen to the right people. And then you name some examples of who those right people are. And in this state, I can also make some additional guesses, right? As somebody who's uh, with uh, with your public organizing, with your community organizing background, as somebody who helped champion uh, an important uh, revenue uh, revenue raising project, you know, we can I can make some, in running in a Democratic primary in Portland, there's certain assumptions I might make, certain guesses I might make about who you might listen to what would be some what would be an impri- a surprising source of information that you would go to well to pass the portland clean energy fund we had to put surprising uh, bedfellows together right we had the building trades with with lab- uh, the building trades with environmental groups um so i i feel like i'm a bridge builder i i go to i go to groups that often don't agree with each other and try to find find solutions, you know, listen to, listen to their advice and solutions, even when they, they don't always agree. So I, I'm not sure if I would say they're surprising, but I guess I would say that I would reach out to folks across the spectrum um, on a variety of issues. We have, I have the building trades endorsing me, which often takes very different positions from me, but I, I really trust their, their guidance and leadership as well, because um, I know that as we are trying to build a more renewable future, we need the builders, the people who actually have expertise in building to be able to to guide this transition that, that is happening. My guess would be, and you can disabuse me of this guess, but my guess would be with the building trades endorsement, that means that you would be in favor, or at least not strongly opposed, that the biggest difference between you and, let's say, Jeff Kogan would be his opposition to, his given vocal opposition to uh, the expansion of I-5, including a bridge to Vancouver. Uh, any disagreement with, from his position? Obviously, he has a different position from the building trades. Where do you land? Um, I am also opposed. I, that building trade supports me because they see that we because we they have seen and recognized my experience as a as a bridge builder. In my interview, we acknowledge that we don't always see eye to eye on many issues, but when it comes to the ability to to build coalitions, to actually listen, I I committed to actually listening and um, always having an open ear to be able to be open to dialogue. But it doesn't mean that you're always going to agree with the people who endorse you. And that's something that we both <laughs> we both were very clear about um, in our in our talks. What would you do about the the proposed Columbia River crossing by whatever name, the uh, idea to put a few billion dollars to tear down the current bridge and to build a new highway system over there? You know, I have been really committed to environmental justice for my entire career, and I think it's really important in this time of crisis when we have ten years. To take really radical action, we need we cannot be 
investing billions of dollars in in expanding freeways and and in, in freeway infra- and fossil fuel infrastructure. So I, I I I as a legislator I don't have direct I have some I have some say, but I would yeah I'm opposed to expanding freeways in this time of climate crisis. And I do think I mean this has been a priority for Tina Kotek. Tina Kotek isn't going to be your boss, but is going to make committee assignments. And the uh, and this is the biggest priority for the building trades, and therefore has been one of the biggest priorities for uh, for major Democratic Party power in the state, at least elected power, and that very much has included. Tina Kotek. And the only real way to block it is if there were a group of legislators who would stand together. You could do it with eight of them, particularly if it required any kind of gas tax, and said, hey, the eight of us aren't going to support the uh, aren't going to support a transportation package unless it uh, doesn't include highway expansions. With that reality, how would you, is that the kind of thing you do? Is that like, well, I don't really want to mess with that as a, as a freshman in the legislature, or you'd want to learn more about it? How would you approach that prospect? As a, as a freshman, I would seek to to learn from my other legislators. I I've stated that I don't think this is the right direction, and I would do everything in my power that to to share my perspective and to advocate for the communities that I've been representing about who aren't going to benefit from this and who are actually going to be hurt if we if our state doesn't take the important climate actions that we need to invest in. Where are other areas that we need to do better when it comes to climate? Obviously, it was the climate package that got uh, killed by Republicans walking out. But what are other areas that you'd prioritize that you think from your own experience, from your district, from the folks that you're going to be advocating for in your district and throughout the state? Where do you want to go in a different direction? One of the key things that I've been working on for the last year is working with statewide groups on an Oregon Green New Deal vision and platform. And that includes so many different um, areas. I think it to take climate action, we need to address our transportation system. Uh, we need to, to broaden how we can use highway trust fund dollars to ensure that we can actually invest in more active transportation, like biking, walking, public transit. Those are the ways, those are the areas that we need to be investing rather than uh, restricting our dollars to highways and bridges. I think we also need to be investing in 100% renewable energy that is community controlled. Um, I would look at uh, 100% renewable portfolio standards and and uh, how can we how can we make sure that the benefits are actually going to community-based projects and 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 going to communities. Um, and I so those are those are two of the ways I think transportation and clean energy are are two key areas that I would I would focus on. What have you learned in the campaign? <laughs> what have I learned? I've learned so much about um, about all the organizations that it takes to 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 talk to. I, I've gone through. I must have talked to you know. It feels like I've talked to hundreds of people um, from labor, like I mentioned, to small businesses to. Uh, to environmental organizations and communities of color, I've I've learned what it means to 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 listen to all different stakeholders and to to really find shared interests and shared values to really at least ground ourselves in shared values, um, and that's that's been um, that's been that's been a really great experience. It's been um, similar to what community organizing is, and I guess it's given me an insight into how governing is in many ways from a different platform, but uses some of the same skills as, a, as an organizer that I've had to draw on. 
what's either the most recent or the most significant time when you have changed a position, when your uh, viewpoint has significantly altered? I would say with the most recent cap-and-trade bill, um, I started out working on it in 2015, um, started to learn about it in 2015, and was doing climate justice workshops, and, you know, um, I generally had a was focused more on the problems of climate change and trusted that um, others would take care of the solution. So I, you know, often in these movements, our communities, communities of color, are kind of just the voices of the impacts, right? So we, we lifted up the impacts that we're seeing in our communities, both both here and also back in our homeland. So I, I really focused a lot on telling people about the impacts of climate change. And it wasn't until uh, several years as I was doing more research about the actual uh, policy um, details of the cap and trade system and the auctioning of permits and how utilities and uh, retail, you know, polluters get these free allowances that I started to delve more deeply into it. And um, by after a few years and also reaching out to communities in California, I realized that actually this policy that I would kind of been unthinkingly including in my climate justice workshops uh, actually have real problems for the ref- communities that live around refineries that um, then... The cap and trade, the, the element yeah. of cap and trade or cap and trade overall? Cap and trade overall in California, but yeah. I think it's the same system that we, we were considering, um, that because polluters can just buy and trade allowances. And for them, the minimal cost of the permits is nothing, and they can just pass it on to the consumers. So so then the mostly low-income black and brown communities that live around refineries have higher rates of cancer, higher rates of asthma. And, and it actually, oil and gas emissions have slightly increased in those areas because because of the way the trading system works. And that's led to me shifting my position and, and ultimately going in opposition. So where does that where, where does that put you on the proposal, and you're closer to it than I am, where does that put you on the proposal that was uh, being wrangled with in the, uh, in the House and Senate in this last session? Uh, that puts me in opposition to the, the most recent proposal, which never really got uh, considered because of the Republican walkout. Um, and, you know, I'm totally, completely opposed to the Republican walkout. I think that regardless of my concerns about cap and trade, I, I absolutely oppose this attack on democracy. And so, yeah, that's, that's what happened. Any specific areas where you find disagreement and where on a endorsement form you indicated that disagreement with one of your organizational endorsers? Yes, yes. Um, I would say with, as I mentioned, uh, with cap and trade, uh, I the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, which has been pushing and supporting this the cap and trade, the cap and invest bill, for many years now, um, it's it's their top priority. That was their first question, their top question, and and I had to be honest that that I disagree with them on it. But I I explained why, my reasons for why, and that we share the same priorities. I just have a strategic, have a different assessment of the best strategy, and I think they understood that we we need that that my values are the same that that we need that I will definitely champion climate justice in the legislature and so um and so they ultimately ended up endorsing me and are and we're discussing we just discussed we were just talking on the phone yesterday about how they could support my campaign 
Con fam, I appreciate so much you spending this time. I know it's a tremendous amount of work and taking away some of your time to be with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Con fam, candidate for House District 46 for the state legislature. Thanks for listening. You're listening to X-Ray. The radio is yours. Thank you to Eric, Rachel, and Con for joining the local. And thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Write a review, give us a five-star rating so we can move up in the queue. And do share it with friends. We're spending pretty much all our time making the show. We don't have time to promote it. You're the people who will have a chance to introduce it to other people. If other people are going to find out about it, it's going to be because you tell them. And if you have story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. <laughs>